Well, good morning, everyone. It is a blessing to be back. A wonderful time of worship to praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, indeed, our living hope. It's hard to imagine that it was four weeks ago that I was here. I have never preached at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, So uh, Peter texted me uh, this week and said, uh, would you mind to uh, preach from below instead of the pulpit, because he'll be turned to Mount Sinai. And I said, it's too intimidating to preach from Mount Sinai. So I happily oblige. But it certainly is a blessing to be back. I prayed for this Sunday. Um, I know you have an important meeting tonight and an important vote. Um, We're praying for you, as I know you're praying for us. Uh, The ball is right now in your court, so to speak. And then after that, Lord willing, if the Lord leads you do uh, call me as your next lead pastor. The ball is in our court. We have been praying for quite some time about this. We are confident, absolutely confident, that God's will will be done one way or another, and in that we rest assured. I'd like to read with you a few verses from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 19 through 25. I appreciate it if you have a Bible or if you have your phone that you read along. This is the word of the living God, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, where it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father God, we are so thankful for your holy word and for the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us. And we ask you, Lord, that you will take the word and will transfer it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you will change our hearts that you will mend them, that you will mold them more into the image of your Son, and that you will be glorified in the process. We pray, as Paul wrote, that your word does not just come in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We ask all these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. There's a very familiar story out there about a mother who really wanted to encourage her son to really continue in learning how to play the piano. So what she did is she bought tickets for a Paderewski performance. Paderewski was Poland's most famous composer and concert pianist. So the day came, they went to the concert. They found their seats in the front of the concert hall. Soon the mom got distracted, she found a friend to talk to, and she did not notice that the boy slipped away. At exactly 8 o'clock, the spotlights went on, 
the audience became quiet, and only then the mother noticed her boy sitting on the bench, innocent playing, twinkle, twinkle, little star. She was mortified. But before she could get her son, the great composer appeared on stage, and he quickly moved to the piano. And he whispered to the boy, don't quit. Keep playing. Leaning over, he placed his hands on either side of the boy, and he began to play along. The audience grew immediately silent at the masterpiece that followed, and afterward, everyone erupted into a standing ovation while the speechless mother, still mortified, took her son off the stage. Don't quit. Keep going. That sentence is very much at the heart of what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his readers. Don't quit. Keep going. The readers to whom he writes were a little bit of a mixed bag. There were some in their audience who started to drift away from Christ, who became spiritually lethargic, stopped meeting with other believers, And then there were some who risked abandoning the faith altogether, going back to Judaism and saying that salvation does not only come, does not come by faith alone, but by faith plus works. Keep going. Do not quit. I very much believe that is God's call to us this morning as well. A call to continue in the faith. To do not settle for sloppy doctrine or for a lukewarm, mediocre Christian life, but to live on fire for Jesus Christ with a deep desire to make him known to a world that needs him desperately. And so my prayer is very simple this morning, that God is going to use his word, because that's where the power lies, And that through the Holy Spirit, he's going to bind that word to our heart and that we leave this place with a deeper desire of wanting to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and being even more impressed what an amazing, glorious, wonderful Savior Christ is. The first word in our passage is the word, therefore. When the writer uses the word, therefore, he reaches back to everything that he has said up until this point And then he summarizes all that he has said in two very basic statements. These statements are two glorious realities about Jesus Christ. And these two statements then become the foundation or the reason for three life-giving commands that he utters. That are rooted in who Jesus Christ is. If you look at the passage, it's very easily structured. So verses 19 through 21, we have those two glorious realities. Therefore, brothers, number one, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Reality number two in verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, glorious realities about who Christ is and who we are in him and what he has given us and how rich we are. And then that is the foundation of the house, if you will, on which he then builds the house, the three life-giving commands. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. 
24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So let's begin with those two glorious realities, and they are glorious indeed. The first one is that Jesus Christ is our great Savior. When the writer talks about having confidence to enter the holy places, our minds go immediately probably to the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, but he's speaking here of the heavenly holy of holies where God lives in unapproachable light. A place where humans do not just barge in. Even in the Old Testament, as you know, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were lots of rules and regulations on who could enter, on what days, and what they had to do in order to enter. Set ways and set days. And now, amazingly, the writer tells us that we have confidence to enter the holy places. It's not just that we can enter. That's amazing in itself. We can enter confidently. Not sheepishly, not timidly, but boldly, with no hesitation whatsoever, we will not be consumed by the holiness and the justice of God, which is overwhelming, but we will be accepted without reservation by Almighty God. That is utterly amazing. Now, how is that possible? Well, the verse tells us. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he, Christ, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You remember, undoubtedly, how in the temple, tabernacle and temple, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And you probably remember when Jesus Christ died, when he gave up his spirit, When his flesh flesh was torn in death, at that very moment, the curtain in the temple was torn top to bottom, which is significant. Now, bottom to top, top to bottom, which implies that it was God himself who tore the curtain. One massive, visible demonstration that because Christ died... Now the gates to God's presence are wide open. Wide open. It says, by the new and living way that he opened for us. The word new is very interesting. If I remember correctly, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It literally means freshly slaughtered. Does that make you think of what Christ what happened to Christ on the cross. So this new way involves death. And yet the writer says a new and living way. Because, praise God, on the third day, the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. By his death and resurrection, our salvation is secured. We have received full forgiveness if we turn away from our sin and we turn to Christ, which is the root of the new covenant In verse 17 of chapter 10, it says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus died once for all, for all who turn from sin and turn to Christ. We have a great Savior. And I'm asking you this very simple question this morning. Does that believer still move you?
does it? I watched this past week a video of the Kemal people in Indonesia who received the New Testament for the first time. It made me cry. To see the excitement and how they treated the word of God. And one of the tribal leaders said, our hearts were heavy, but they are no longer heavy. They are light. That is conversion. That is salvation. Living under the weight of sin, living under the weight of guilt, and then Jesus Christ coming and taking away our sin, and taking away our sin, our guilt, and giving us new life. Our hearts were heavy, but now they're light. Jesus is our great Savior. Does it move you? Not only a great Savior, he's also a great priest. Verse 21. And since, the second reason, we have a great priest, Hebrews 4 says, a great high priest over the house of God. If you're here this morning and you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you can say, I have a great priest in Jesus Christ. As a great priest, he intercedes for us. He prays for us. And please turn with me to Hebrews 14. One of the ministries of Jesus, current ministries, is his high priest. Is our high priest. Is that he sympathizes with us. These amazing words. Beginning of verse, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus Christ, our high priest, sympathizes with us, literally co-suffers with us in our weaknesses, and weak we are. Right? Weak as human beings, weak as Redeemed sinners, yet still sinning. And the amazing thing is that Jesus Christ, as our high priest, moves not away from us because of our weaknesses, but he moves toward us. It says he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then he invites us to draw with confidence to him. Jesus experienced weakness in his humanity. Jesus did not read about weakness in a book. He did not attend a seminar. He experienced it in his own physical body. Fully God, fully man. Loneliness, grief, hunger, ridicule. He never committed any sin, but he knew the limitations of a human body living in a sin-afflicted world. And out of that great experience, that incredible compassion, he moves towards us when we struggle with our weakness. And it's real. You know, it's amazing how we deal with weaknesses of other people. The, the example that comes to mind is our kids are older now, but when they were little, sitting at the, dinner, at the breakfast table Sunday morning, rushing, getting ready to go to church, as a, as a leader, certainly always want to portray that we have everything under control, you know, we're the perfect family, not. 
Your kid spills orange juice for the third time because he's clumsy, doesn't have good motor skills. It's a weakness. Do you move towards him? Ugh. Get irritated. You get frustrated. Not our Savior. Not our Savior. And this drawing near that he invites us to do in a minute is because he is such a great Savior and such a great great high priest. No one loves us like him. No one helps us like him. No one forgives us like him. No one cares about us like him. No one empowers us like him. No one sympathizes with us in our weaknesses like him. A glorious, great Savior, a glorious, great high priest. Now, how in the world would you respond to someone like that? What's there not to like about Christ? What's there not to marvel about and want to worship? And so the author, going back to chapter 10, after mentioning those two glorious realities about Christ the Savior, Christ the High Priest, and there's so much more about that in the, in the beginning part of the book of Hebrews that we can talk about, now brings us to a point where we want to do the things that he commands us to do. That we have such love for him and such admiration, such worship, that it's a natural heart response to draw near to him, to hold fast to the confession of our faith and our hope, and to stir one another up to love and good works. It is a natural thing. That's why we have to go back to the gospel over and over again, preach it to ourselves, marvel about how such a great Savior can love and forgive such a great sinner as we are. That is what we need. That keeps our heart, our heart sensitive and tender. Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus is a great high priest. Therefore... Chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near to Almighty God in a way that was impossible under the Old Covenant. Totally impossible. And the only prerequisite is faith. As the text says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? Faith. Faith in what? In God? No, that's not enough. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin, turning away from our sin, putting all of our hope in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. This is the most spectacular invitation that will ever be extended to you in your life. That almighty God says the gates are wide open. And the only thing you need to do is to come. Draw near to God. So I'm asking you this very serious question. Have you? Have you come? I lost the illusion very early in life that when I'm preaching to a congregation or I'm teaching a Bible study, that everybody who's there is saved. And so 
I'm asking you that very solemn, serious, most important question. Have you come? Have you acknowledged your need for a Savior, your sinfulness? And have you embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you? If you have not, I invite you, I beg you, if the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart, do not leave this building before you bend the knees for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you receive new life and forgiveness of sin and hope in the future. Draw near to God. Oh, I pray that all of us have done that. And here's the amazing thing. This drawing near to God is something we do at the very beginning of a spiritual life, our salvation experience. But then that should become the life beat of our whole Christian experience. Where we draw near to God, draw near to Christ over and over and over again as we go through our days. A moment by moment directing of our hearts to Christ, to the word, to the promises that he gives us. I'm convinced that as the church, capital C, and goes for many Christians who obviously make up the church as well, we are spiritually anemic in our worship, in our witness, in our study of the word, in our prayer life, because we have not developed the skill the discipline of drawing near to God over and over and over again. Living in close communion with him. Two days ago, I mean, these are, as you can imagine, these are strange days for us. I mean, they're full days of the congregation back in Massachusetts. Um, they're dealing with a good possibility that the pastor's leaving um, and then, you know, stuff in our family and, and my dad living in the Netherlands and, and his health issues and everything. And one morning I got up and I felt weak, right? So you need to know if this is God's will for me to become your new lead pastor. I am a weak person. By that, I mean, don't mean I don't have convictions. I do. Does not mean that I have a glorious Savior that is always there for me. But I'm beset with weaknesses. And this morning I felt that. I, I, I struggled. Struggled to, to, to find peace. And so I read through the Bible. I use a Bible reading schedule. And I read, read through scripture uh, during a year. And so that day I thought the reading was Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Accidentally, I will say providentially, I read chapters 3. And there I found this verse. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Oh my goodness, what a promise. The peace of God available to me right now, struggling with weakness at all times, in every way. Then it says, the Lord be with you all. And I'm so thankful that that moment, I drew near to God, and I could experience some of that peace that passes all understanding. That's what he wants to do for us. But you've got to draw near. We're not hooked up to an IV that drips that sense of closeness and presence and power in our lives. Seek him.
Draw near to God. That's not enough. The second command that the writer gives is hold fast to the truth. Look at verse 23 back in Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now remember, the readers to whom the writer addresses this letter are tempted to forsake Jesus. That's why there's a lot of warning sections in the book of Hebrews, where he says, do not drift. You know, most people do not make one massive turn away from the Christian faith. They drift. It's a slow process. And so the writer does not want his audience to do that. He wants them to keep going. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting this. He wants to keep going, wants the, the readers to keep going, to hold fast, to stay faithful. And he says, you hold fast to the truth. There is a call to remain rooted and grounded in the truth, to hold fast to Christ, to hold fast to the word, like a pit bull will refuse to let go of its bone, holding on with all of your might. That's important. Because we will not draw near to God and receive the strength and support we need. We will not, as we will see in a minute, stir up one another to love and good deeds if we let go of the truth. And I'm not telling you anything new that the prevalent worldview today is there is no such thing as truth, objective truth, fixed reality that exists outside of us independent of our personal opinion, that acts as a referee, determines what is right, what is wrong, and how we think, feel, and do. That's not the way the world thinks. Jesus comes along and Jesus says, I am the truth. And he says in John 17 to the Father, your word is truth. There is true truth. There is an objective standard. A few years ago, Oprah at her 2018 acceptance speech at the Golden Globes, made the following statement. She said, I quote, speaking, listen to this, speaking, your truth is the most powerful tool which we all have. Your truth. The meaning, if it's your truth, it may not be the truth, it may be different than my truth, but it's your truth, and it's the most powerful tool that we have. But isn't truth just Truth. Isn't the truth the truth regardless of how I feel about it, what my personal opinion is about it, what I have experienced or not experienced? We all have personal stories, personal perspectives. But if all those recollections of events are not according to the truth, if it's not objective, it is a lie and not the truth. The writer says, and God says to us, dear people, you hold fast unswervingly, without wavering. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, to the confession of our hope. This hope is certain and secure. This is not the kind of hope that we use in sentences like, I hope it's not going to rain this afternoon. It may and may not. No one knows. Biblical hope is certain. It's secure. It's anchored in Christ. It is not wishful thinking. It is rock solid because it's rooted in the promises of God, and the promises of God cannot, will not fail. Ever. 
That's why he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. You know, we're, we're not the most faithful bunch at times, right? But he will never be unfaithful, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, because he cannot deny himself. And so, let us be Christians. Let us work hard at having families and churches that will humbly but boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and defend the glorious hope in him, whatever the cost. Hold fast to the truth. Draw near to God. And then there's one more. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. This one is very important. It's always been important, but according to the text, it's more important now than it was when the author penned these words. Look at verse 25. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is he saying here? Let me just summarize it in one statement. And listen carefully because this is hugely important. We have strayed from this. And COVID has done us a disservice, all right? This is what he's saying. The Christian life is a community project. So get involved with other believers. We live in a culture and a society that is so individualistic. It boggles the mind sometimes. And I know I'm part of it, right? We'll go out to eat. We'll be sitting at a table and we'll be talking. And then next to us is a couple sitting and they're not eating. They're not talking. They're on their phone the whole time. It's like you can do that at home. It doesn't cost you as much as when you go out to eat. (laughs) But that spirit has crept into the church. Listen to this. Trying to be a Christian by yourself is like riding a bicycle with one pedal. You can do it, at least some of it, but you're not going to get very far, and you're going to get very tired soon. That's not how God designed the Christian life. And the point that he's making here, apparently there were people that were neglecting to meet one another, and it became an habitual thing to them. Some interpreters even think that this is a description of apostasy, that they had just completely turned their back on Christ. Perhaps it is. I'm not entirely sure. But the point is, if God designed the Christian life as a family, as a community project, if there is a call to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, which literally means you look at one another and you think, how can I help him or her to do good deeds and to love God and to love a neighbor? You've got to meet each other. You can't do that in solitude. You can read your Bible alone. You can pray alone. You cannot fellowship alone. So you've got to come. You've got to be part of a local church. You've got to be part of a body, of the local body of Christ, a, a group of believers that come to grow, to fellowship. You need relationships and conversations that are meaningful and spiritual in nature that help you shape your Christian life, your walk. It means saying no to rugged individualism. The Christian life does not know the concept of a lone ranger. That's what we've invented. That's not God's vision. That means saying no to cliques in the church. 
I mean, it is so important that people come and are part of the church, that they feel that they're loved and accepted and not shunned, even if that's not always a conscious decision. What we do here this morning right now is great. The church gathered to come under the preaching of the Holy Word of God, to be grounded in the Bible. That is absolutely essential. The preaching of the Word is central, but it's not enough. You need other moments, gatherings, small group meetings, whatever you want to call it, or you get together to talk about what the Word of God means fleshed out in your personal life, in your marriage, in your child-rearing, a place where you can be safe, confess sin, ask for prayer, be vulnerable, fellowship, discipleship, a greenhouse for spiritual growth. Where all the ingredients are available, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God, together. We see in the, in the early church, they met each other in the temple and they met each other daily in each other's homes. And it says they were together. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago when, um, during one of our gatherings, um, what's your vision for Garden Chapel? That's a hard question to ask. To, well, it's an easy question to ask. It's a hard question to answer. And the simple reason for that is I don't really know Garden Chapel that well. Gotten to know it a little bit, but I don't really know it. I don't really know you. I don't know the nitty-gritty. I don't know where the needs are. But I can tell you one thing that is part of my vision for any church. It's right here, verses 24 and 25. That idea of a church... It doesn't just get her on Sunday morning, but it's church throughout the week because God says you need it. It's dangerous if we move away from that, if we become isolated. That was happening to the church or churches to whom the writer of Hebrews sent this letter, and he says the same thing to us. We have a great Savior, we have a great high priest who invites us to draw near first for salvation and then from that moment every day of our lives until we are in glory. Who says, hold fast to the truth. Do not deviate from it to the left or to the right. And now you stir one another up to love and good deeds. You see, what happens is if we are more connected here, our testimony out there will be stronger. Because there's something about the church of Jesus Christ actually living and acting like the church of Jesus Christ that the world does not get. It doesn't get it. How is it possible that there's a group of people that are, are diverse in many different ways, are unified in Jesus Christ? That's something they don't get. That's a testimony. That's a platform. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. And notice all the more when we see, as we see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's return. Matthew tells us that the end will be marked by love growing cold. The temperature in the world is turned down. It's icy. God says, let the church be the exact opposite of that. Let Love, not grow cold, but let it grow warm. Let the embers that we are as the body of Christ 
touch one another. So filled by the Spirit of God under the guidance of the Word of God, we can make a difference in this world. You come to our house, you would see in our house some IKEA furniture. Um, we like it because we had some of that in the Netherlands, and it's relatively cheap, and we like some of the style. Not, not the real modern stuff, but if you know anything about IKEA, you, if you go to IKEA and you want to buy a table, you don't really buy a table. You buy a box, right? And then you come home, and then you try to put it together, which we have done. We have a lot of experience. It's been a real test for our marriage, um, to be honest. And, and there's just like a little tidbit of like how Gene and I are different. My conviction is you read the manual when all else fails. And hers is you first read the manual, the whole thing, and then you start the process. I don't work that way. So we've had our challenges. But I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes on those boxes, there's this little phrase, assembly required. All right, so they're upfront about it. Low price, but you're going to have to put this thing together yourself. I say to you that when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God puts a label on you that says assembly required. So how are you doing? How are you doing when it comes to holding fast to the truth? Are you in God's word? You should, because you need it. Are you drawing near to him? Are you reaching out to him? Are you calling out to him? One of the best prayers are the shortest prayers. Lord, help. You don't know what to do with your kid. You have a challenging situation at your job. You're tempted to look at something which you know is wrong, is sin. And yet the temptation is so strong. You can almost not resist. Do you cry out, Oh God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I want to see you, God, give me strength and turn away from it. Do you stir up one another to love and good deeds? Or do you come to church with one agenda, and that is what's in it for me? I want to feel good. I want to have a good experience. I want to hear a good sermon. It's great. Or do you come to church and say, I want to love God. And I want to show that love by loving other people. I want to talk to the person sitting next to me. If he's new, I want to know his name. I don't know how I can pray for him. I want to be part of a church that's just a bunch of islands. It's a family. So how are you doing? How are you doing? Let me close in prayer. And before I, I will pray, I will give you just a minute or two, just for your own sake, to have an opportunity to speak to God and to praise him, thank him, confess, where you sense that you have perhaps wandered away from him, and then I'll close. Almighty Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you in this moment to express to you in words that are completely inadequate how much we love you. We do not understand the kind of love that you have for us sinners. We're so thankful for your dear son Jesus Christ, for his obedience, for his willing sacrifice. 
And that right now we can stand into your presence, your holy presence, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We do not deserve it. We did not earn it. It is all by grace and how we love your grace. And Father, I pray that as we, all of us, have to acknowledge that so often still we fall short of the glory of of God. I pray, Lord, that we leave this place with a renewed sense of how awesome you are and how great our need for you is. I pray for those right now here in this room that do not know you. Lord, I pray that you will knock on the door of their heart and that they will not leave this place before they bend the knee for the King of kings and the Lord of lords and they know this experience of weight being lifted. That you say, I will remember your sin no more. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know Christ, and I'm, I, I'm sure that's the vast majority of us here. Lord, help us to live in humility. Acknowledge our weaknesses. Help us to draw near to you, knowing that because of the blood of Christ, you will not reject us. You will not scowl at us. You will not frown upon us. Lord, we come acknowledging our need for you. We come with a humble heart and in repentance. Lord, we need to do that corporately as well. Because even as churches, Lord, we we fail and we wander away from you. So I pray, Lord, that no matter what the future holds for Garden Chapel and for us, that you will revive this church. That you will bring revival to this area. And we know that begins with the people of God who turn away from sin and turn to you and are overwhelmed with your holiness and submit to you in every area of our lives. Lord, we fall short, but we thank you for the cross and we thank you for our great Savior and our great High Priest. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless this church and bless its people to the glory of your name and the furtherance of your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.